0: Let's jump in. 2 Timothy, part 5. This is Paul's letter to Timothy. It's his last letter. Before he dies, he is awaiting execution. If you remember, he's in a jail cell. You can actually go visit the jail cell in Rome that people thought that he was in. So he is awaiting, at any moment, his execution for his faith and his leadership in the gospel. And he's writing this letter to Timothy. And there is so much... To learn, This has been a letter that's encouraged Christians and leaders for years, and I've loved going through it. It's one of my favorite letters, and I hope you're enjoying it too, and we're just going to keep going through it. And I want to start with this question for you today. This is a question I like to ask people when we talk about the topic of leadership, or if I'm trying to teach younger guys how to grow as a leader. And the question is this very simply What makes a good leader? What makes someone a leader that you want to follow? And that you could say a lot of different things. I think I've even asked that question in here before. And what typically happens when I ask that question is you get a list and then what you find when you look at the list is that the things that people said are not things like they're the most popular person, they're the most successful, they're the funniest, they're the coolest, they look the best. It's not these things that our world values. What we typically see on that list is it's more things like integrity. It's things like the way that they serve other people. But one of the biggest things that you will see on that list is something that makes a good leader is that they practice what they preach. They actually do the things that they're telling other people to do. So I remember one time when I was in high school, I had the privilege of getting to know a guy that used to be a Navy SEAL. And he had some crazy stories of things that he got to do when the hurricane happened in New Orleans. He, drew, he, he took a Hummer to New Orleans on like an off the grid mission and was rescuing people. And I remember he told me, he was like a Hummer can do way more than you think it can do. Meaning that he would like drive it into things. Like it was, it was an insane story. One of the things he told me is in his, his history before he was a Navy SEAL, he actually played in the NFL. And he was telling me that at a training camp day, I think it was with the Ravens at the time, he was running with Ray Lewis. And if you know who Ray Lewis is, Ray Lewis is a Hall of Fame linebacker. Um, Some would say one of the best linebackers of all time. He has two Super Bowls and he is a talker. If you go on YouTube and you search like Ray Lewis mic'd up, it is a trip. He is a trash talker. And he is a leader. He is crazy. He is in people's face. He's loud. He is a, that kind of player on his team. And I remember what this guy told me, this Navy SEAL, said that in the training camp scenario when no one else was watching and the team was running sprints, he was like the guy that ran the hardest and he finished every single sprint to the very end and he would stay after and run more sprints was Ray Lewis. It's like this hall of fame linebacker that had tons of money, tons of fame, tons of success. He remembered how powerful it was to see him actually back up the things that he was saying. Is that he sacrificed more than he was asking other people to do. He applied to his own life the things he was telling other people to do. And that inspired everyone else. So a good leader, they not only teach their followers what to do, they set the example they live it out. I remember when I used to work at TBRM Sports Camp in the summer. One of my mentors and role models, his name is Cole. He was our camp director. He is a great leader, and I looked up to him a lot. But I remember one of the things that he did one day is he would talk about he wanted us to uh, clean up the trash as the leadership team, and that was usually a job that the work crew would do. This is on closing day of camp when all the parents are there. He's wearing his nice polo, right? And I look over and I see Cole is leaning on the ground, picking up trash. He's the director of the whole camp. He's dressed up nice. It's the biggest day of the week. And he was on his knees cleaning up the floor, doing the exact thing that he was asking other people. Not because people saw him. He didn't even know anyone saw him. Then I remember how much that stuck with me. And they would often read this poem to us at camp. I'm just going to read the first line. And they would say this before we started the week. They would say, I'd rather see a sermon than hear one any day. I'd rather one should walk with me than merely tell the way. The eye is a better pupil, more willing than the ear. Fine counsel is confusing, but example is always clear. And the best of all the preachers are the men who live their creeds. For to see a good put in action is what everybody needs. And that line, I'd rather see a sermon than hear one. Because when you see it, it sticks with you. And the reason I tell you that is because last week we talked about how Paul is encouraging Timothy toward what I'm going to call gospel endurance. He's saying, Timothy, endure in the faith and in your mission, even when things around you are crazy. And if you remember, he did that through three metaphors. The farmer, the athlete, and the soldier. Okay, this week what he's going to do is he's going to say, I want to reinforce that. I don't just want to put a big idea on paper I want to enforce it through real examples and real experiences of real people. I don't want to just tell you what to do. I want to show you an example of what it looks like. So this is it. This is my little outline of 2 Timothy 2, little Bible study style right here. I think we have it, so I don't we? you can check this out. This is this is it. Paul's encouraging Timothy toward gospel endurance. So first three seven verses we talked about last week, three metaphors: the soldier, the farmer, the athlete. And then today we're going to talk about three examples, three experiences to put flesh and blood on these big ideas that he's talking about. And these are the three examples and experiences. We're going to talk about the example of Jesus. We're going to talk about the example of Paul. And then we're going to talk about the example of all faithful believers. So here we go. Let's talk about Jesus' example. This is 2 Timothy 2, 8 through 13. This is verse 8, talking about Jesus' example. Paul tells Timothy, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. Now, when you think about that, why is Paul telling Timothy to remember Jesus Christ? That seems like an obvious thing, doesn't it? Okay, it's like telling Matt Stafford tonight, hey, remember to score a touchdown. You like would say, I don't need to be reminded of that. I'm aware that, like, that's the goal. That's the, what we're trying to do here. Why is Paul telling Timothy, the guy who he preached the gospel with all the time to remember Jesus Christ? It's like, that's fairly obvious, but here's the reality. We forget things all the time. Like I have left. I remember one time I was at Chick-fil-A. I was so excited to get my tea to go and somehow in the transition of taking stuff, getting into my car, checking my phone, getting organized. I didn't realize I left the tea on top of my car. And I pull off, and somehow, amazingly, it stayed on for a while. And then out of nowhere on the road, when I kind of made a movement, I noticed this drink just fly forward and basically explode. I totally had forgotten that I had left it there. And we all forget things. Like maybe you forgot your homework to bring to school one day. Maybe you, you know, lose your car keys all the time, or your parents do. And they're always like, where are my keys? I have no idea where I put them. I, um, I had a friend at camp who would always lose his backpack, This is amazing. It was like, how do you always lose your backpack? You would just forget leaving it around. So we forget things all the time. And then on top of that, sorry for the plethora of sports metaphors today. It's just, it's Super Bowl Sunday. It's one of those days. Um, We forget things, especially in pressure situations. When we're under pressure, we can forget things. So the, one of the most famous stories, uh, Mikey and I, I think we're talking about this on Friday, or if it wasn't you, it was someone else, but I'm going to give you the credit. Um, There's a, a basketball team, the Michigan Fab Five team. It's one of the best teams to, to play, and they were up 73-71 in the NCAA tournament, or they were down 73-71 with, two, with 11 seconds left, okay, down by two, and Chris Webber called a timeout, and he didn't realize that they didn't have any more timeouts, and that's a technical foul. So it sent the other team, I think it was North Carolina, to the free throw line, and they ended up winning the game because of that, because Chris Webber forgot that they didn't have any timeouts because he's in this pressure-packed situation, And Paul knows this about Timothy. When you're in a pressure situation, we tend to forget the most important things. This is Israel's story in the Old Testament. In Exodus 15, uh, they are praising God because he rescues them from slavery, which is kind of a big deal. He like parts the sea, they walk through, and then it it crashes in and kills everyone. Fun children's story and they're praising God, then three days later, they're in the wilderness, they start running out of water, and they accuse God of wanting to kill them. All right, God just rescued them, and they're like, why are you bringing us out here to kill us? Okay, and we we do this all the time. There's something in us where we are a forgetful people. We forget what God has done for us. We forget how good he is. We forget Jesus Christ. So Paul needed to remind Timothy, in the midst of pressure, you have to remember Jesus Christ. Christ, And there are consequences when the church forgets Jesus Christ, when the church moves away from Jesus Christ. David Brooks is a New York Times columnist. Uh, about a week ago, he came out with a column, and it's fascinating. And basically what he says in this column this is in the New York Times, okay, a newspaper that's generally very opposed to Christianity. So when I read this, I want you to keep that in mind. It's amazing that he brought this up. Okay, the church in America, if you've been paying attention, Christianity in America has been very divided over the past few years and confused because of some main issues. Some of these issues include politics. Some of them include sexual views and sexual issues um, and race relations. These are issues that have divided the church, that have caused confusion in the church, And the world is taking notice of the division and the bitterness in a church that has gotten off mission. And this is what David Brooks says in his New York Times article about a week ago. He said, the age of the autonomous individual, the age of the narcissistic self, and the age of consumerism and moral drift has left us with bitterness and division, a surging mental health crisis and people just being nasty to one another. So he's saying that in the culture we live in that is so focused on ourselves, our selfishness, on consumerism, on uh, bitterness, on moral drift, drifting away from a sense of moral value, it has left us with a mental health crisis and broken relationships. And that's what studies increasingly show. But this is what he says at the end, and this is crazy that he says this in the New York Times. He says, Christianity is a potential answer for that search and therein lies its hope and the great possibility of renewing its call. He also says at the end of it that there is a general interest in getting away from all the bitterness and just diving back into the Bible. This is a guy in the New York Times and he's saying that in the midst of this world we live in and all the brokenness, he's saying, I think that there is hope If we go back to the basics of the Christian and biblical message, that's incredible that this New York times writer is acknowledging that. And for us, one of the best pieces I can possibly of advice, I can possibly give all of us for the rest of our lives is simple. It's to get to know Jesus deeply in the gospels, to spend time studying Jesus in the gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Every year I start the year in January picking a gospel to go through. Right now I'm going through Luke. And every year I want to re-study Jesus. I want to look at who he is. I want to get back to who he is. If you find yourself stuck, you find yourself uncertain about where to go next in life. You're in a hard situation. You don't know what to do. Start by going back to the author and the perfecter of our faith. That's the biggest thing for the American church today. It is a recalibration back to who Jesus is. If the church doesn't look like Jesus, act like Jesus, think like Jesus, feel like Jesus, it's probably not the church of Jesus. But you cannot go wrong if you become more like Jesus. If you don't know anything else to do, if you remember Jesus Christ, you study his example and what he came to do, you cannot go wrong. If you do that, that's the biggest need in the church today. That's what David Brooks is saying, essentially, in the New York Times, a recalibration to remember Jesus Christ. Paul just said the same thing 2,000 years ago. He was just a little ahead of it. Okay. Now, the other thing it says, these two phrases, risen from the dead, the offspring of David. What does he mean there? These phrases are loaded. You could spend hours talking about these phrases, but in short, what it's referring to are his person, who he is, and his work why he came, his identity and his purpose. Now his identity, the offspring of David emphasizes that he is fully man. He is fully human. Risen from the dead emphasizes his divinity. He's fully God. So who he is, he is fully God, fully man, God's son. That's who he is, his work. Why did he come? Risen from the dead indicates that he came for the purpose of dying for our sins so we could have forgiveness in a relationship with God again, and he rose from the dead. The resurrection is everything. If we don't have a resurrection, all of the stuff doesn't matter at all. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, is if the resurrection didn't happen, then none of this matters. However, if the resurrection happened, and there is incredible historical evidence that it did take place, then all of this is something that can be trusted. The offspring of David, means that Jesus fulfills God's promises. God keeps his promises. And David, as the king, shows that Jesus is the ultimate king. He came to establish his kingdom. So together, if you piece all that together, that means that Jesus is both savior and he is king because God keeps his promises. That's what Paul's getting at. Remember Jesus Christ, the one who is your savior and your king, because God keeps his promises. It's like Paul's saying, hey, Timothy, when you are tempted to run, when you're tempted to give up because life is hard, because Christianity's hard, remember Jesus Christ. Look at his example. Look at his sacrifice for you. In Band of Brothers, if you've ever heard of it, it's about World War II. Uh, Lieutenant Spears, one of the main guys in it, he, uh, he saw that his men had been separated by the enemy. So what he does is he gets up and he runs Through enemy fire, he helps his lost troops, and then he runs back through enemy fire. And when his troops saw that their leader had sacrificed himself going through enemy fire, it emboldened them for their mission. And that's what we have. That's what Paul's telling Timothy, is when you remember Jesus Christ, you see that your founder, your leader, sacrificed himself for you. It emboldens you when life is hard. Now, why does that matter? Because when I forget Jesus, when I don't remember Jesus Christ, I drift into believing that my life is in my own hands. I have to control my destiny. It's on me to carry the burden of my life. I drift to thinking I need people's acceptance and approval to matter. I'm drifting into believing that joy is found in other things. I drift into allowing worry, fear, and anxiety to take over. But when I remember Jesus Christ, that he's my faithful Savior and King, and the evidence that God keeps his promises, I experience freedom from those things. That's what Paul wants for Timothy. That's what Paul wants for you and me. All right. So he gives us Jesus' example. He also gives us his own example in 2 Timothy 2, 9, and 10. Paul says, Hey, Timothy, look at my own example. Let's see if we can get it up here. He says, The gospel's why he's suffering. Bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. So, Paul is saying that he's suffering for this message, and that can be discouraging. Kind of, if you've ever been in a discouraging situation, you might be sitting in this chair today and you feel like you are in a discouraging situation like Timothy was in, but what Paul is telling Timothy, is that even though I've been bound with chains, I've been in discouraging situations, the word of God is not bound. And his example is proof of that, that nothing can stop the gospel. Nothing can stop God's word from spreading. Nothing can stop God's word from accomplishing its purposes. That history actually shows that the more people try to stop the gospel, the more it actually spreads the gospel. And history shows that over and over again. It's like If you think that you're pouring water on a fire, but the water is actually gas, that's what's happening. People are like, "Ah, I'm putting out Christianity. It's like, no, 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 no. You're actually making it explode. Okay, the Chinese underground church, as people tried to control it and force it, underground, it just exploded. It was one, it's one of the biggest Christian movements in world history. The early church is the same way that the more people try to stop Christianity the more it actually explodes. So one of the biggest things that actually hurts the spread of the gospel is the more comfortable it is to believe it. So now, as David Brooks is alluding to, the more in our day, it actually will require a sacrifice in our culture publicly to be a Christian, the more actually the gospel is going to spread. That's what's going to happen. Okay, and Paul says then he endures everything, all these things, okay? It doesn't just say some things. He endures everything for the sake of the elect. Now, that can be a word that confuses people and freaks people out even, but it just means this. God has ordained before he even created the world that there are people that are going to come to faith in him. And what he's saying is if that's true, that when Paul works, he knows that God is going to accomplish his purposes. That when you tell someone about Jesus, when you help lead a Bible study, when you sacrifice your time and your life to help someone else in their faith, God is going to accomplish his purposes. So Paul knew that he could gladly endure whatever he had to endure because he knew that he couldn't lose. Okay, this is not, it's not meant to be a doctrine of confusion. It's meant to be a doctrine of comfort. That God is going to get the people that he set out to get. He wants to use us to do that. It doesn't eliminate Paul's responsibility. It actually fuels his responsibility because he's, he's going out with a confidence that God's going to accomplish his purpose. Now, I want you to see this. This is 2 Corinthians 11. This is mind-boggling. When Paul says, I endured everything, here's a little partial list of some of the things he's talking about. All right, just so we know, just kind of start looking at this. Far greater labors, far more imprisonments. You know that's true because he's in jail when he writes this. 2 Timothy, countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews, 40 lashes less one. That doesn't sound enjoyable. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times he was shipwrecked. Night and day he was adrift at sea. Frequent journeys, danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people. You go on and on and on. Sleepless nights, hunger and thirst, often without food. I mean, that's crazy right? Like he's saying, this is what I endured for the gospel. But look at what he says at the end. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. What he's saying is that God uses our sufferings to show us his sufficiency. He uses our sufferings to show us his sufficiency. That our sufferings are the perfect opportunity to experience God's sufficiency. As Robert Capon says, lostness, deadness, uselessness, and nothingness are God's cup of tea. Those are the perfect opportunities for God to jump in and show you how big he is. And what Paul's saying is when you know that God's purposes can't fail, it gives you confidence. He's saying, look at my example. That's been my own life. When I was in college, played in a dodgeball tournament, and basically there was a scenario where in one of the rounds, one of the team, why are you laughing? I don't think I can... I can like win it or what? There's a, in one of the rounds, one of the teams was not going to play the next round because they needed to go do something else, I guess. So there basically it was guaranteed we were going to win. Like we had a guaranteed win. Whatever happens in the game, they have to leave. So we're winning. So what did that do? Like we just went crazy. Like we had no fear because we knew we were going to win. We were throwing balls everywhere, running around, taking risks, and we ended up dominating them, as usual, because we weren't afraid of losing. We knew we couldn't lose. And what Paul's saying is that when you realize that your king won, you can't lose, his purposes are going to be accomplished. It gives encouragement. Whatever's discouraging you today, like Paul, this can give you comfort and confidence in a difficult and discouraging time. Now, here's the last point. This one will be quicker. This is some complex stuff. I wrestled all week with how to say this, so I'm just going to jump in and we're going to end with this. This is the end of the passage. Paul he's going to describe the experience, the example of all faithful Christians as a category. And, and this is what he says, The same is trustworthy. For if we have died with Him, we will also live with Him. If we endure, we will also reign with Him. Die with him. That's conversion language. When you become a Christian, Romans six, you die with Jesus. Does that mean you actually die on the cross? No, it means you are associated with Jesus by faith. So your sins are nailed to the cross. So everything you've done that you regret, even if you walk in here today with guilt and shame, when you are associated with Jesus by faith, all that stuff is nailed to the cross. And you will also live with him. You get to live with forever with him. That's what Paul's saying. Then if you endure, you will reign with him. Endurance is talking about that if someone's really a Christian, they're going to continue to walk with Jesus during their life. We're going to suffer in this life. We might even stumble and fall at times. We're going to struggle with sin. But what he's saying is that one of the evidences that a person really has trusted in Jesus is they're going to begin to follow him. They're going to begin to be a faithful witness to him wherever they are. And that's why for us, we're not interested in just putting on programs on Sunday and doing small groups. We are interested in the business of life change. We want to see God change lives. Being saved, it's 100% a work of God's grace, but an evidence that someone's saved is that they endure in the faith. They follow Jesus. They exhibit a level of life change. Doesn't mean we don't struggle with sin, but it does mean that there is some life change that happens. That's one of the things that Paul's doing. Now he flips it, talks about being associated with Jesus at the beginning, at the end, I'll do this complex stuff. If we deny him, he will also deny us we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. Now, if you read that, it's confusing because it's like, wait a minute, if we deny him, he'll also deny us. That seems to make sense because if I choose to deny Jesus, I don't want to be associated with him. He is going to honor that decision one day. C.S. Lewis says there are two kinds of people in the end, those who say to God, "Thy thy will be done, and to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. So either I say to God, thy will be done. I'm associating with Jesus or I choose willingly not to and he is going to give me what I wanted in the end. And so the reality is that we're not here. I think what Paul is saying, this is a warning. We're not here to just sing songs about Jesus and salute him. We, and then go live however we want to during the week. We don't just want to celebrate the cross on Sunday and then go live for our own little kingdoms all week. We want to be following Jesus during the week, that's what he's getting at. However, there's this line at the end, if we're faithless, he remains faithful. So that seems confusing, and this can stress people out because it's like, wait a minute, deny him and faithless seem like the same thing, but deny us and remain faithful seem like opposites. So what is that possibly talking about? I'll, uh, I'll say this, there's actually a lot of opinions on what this means, but I'll say this, if you think about Jesus's disciples, you have Judas and you have Peter. When I worked at camp, we did this gospel presentation, I had to play Judas one year, and then the next year I played Peter. And I did Peter the first year, then I did Judas the next year. Um, There's a picture of me, too, as Judas, which is really interesting. But Judas is the one that betrayed Jesus, right? But what did they both do? In the moment when Jesus was being taken, both of them actually hid. They both ran. Judas rejected Jesus, and then Peter denies him three times. So if I were to ask you, well, which one of those people denied Jesus, which one of them endured, you would say they both seem to deny him, right? Like in that moment, they both seem to deny him. But what happened is, is later on, Judas did not turn back to Jesus, but Jesus ran after Peter, and Peter ran back to him. And so the reality is this, is that this is painting essentially a picture, okay, that in some cases, and it takes a life to see this, is that we're going to fail. We're going to struggle. But in the end, Jesus never stops coming back for you. If you put your trust in him and you're really his, he is going to keep coming back for you. He remains faithful when we are faithless. So in this is both a warning and an encouragement. And that's the good news. If you're here today and you've trusted in Jesus, he doesn't say you're going to be the perfect soldier, the perfect athlete, or the perfect farmer. He says that when we're faithless, he remains faithful. You're going to mess up this week. You probably messed up last week. I did too. Okay, we come in here having messed up. But in that moment, we get to do what Peter did. We get to turn around and we get to see our Savior running after us. He's going to finish the work that he began. And what Paul's telling Timothy is let his faithfulness be an encouragement to you today. Three examples of what it looks like to be changed by the gospel, how much God loves you in Christ what he did on the cross, how he rose from the dead, what that looks like as we stay faithful to him day to day and the mission that he's called you to. If you want to talk about any of that, please come up to me or another staff member. We would love to discuss with you. Otherwise, I'm going to pray for us. Gathering, we're flipping, remember, unless you convince me that I shouldn't. But this week, normal Bible studies, next week, gathering. Let me pray. God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. We, just, we know that some of that is complex. We pray that it would convict us where it needs to convict us and we pray that it would encourage us where it needs to encourage us we thank you for the example of jesus paul and that description of all faithful christians we pray that the more we see jesus and remember him we would go out and follow him and be faithful to witness to the gospel we thank you for his grace we thank you for your love and we just pray that we would celebrate the fact when we walk out of here today that you are faithful and we can rest in that. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen.